there was no clue to the madness that would cause him to set fires all over California. I just put my head down on my desk and, and cried. Two store employees died in this blaze, along with two-year-old Matthew Troidel and his 50-year-old maternal grandmother. For one thing, I can't stand a dirty cop. Prosecutors claim the former arson investigator got sexual gratification out of setting fire. Who, who really suspects their partner of something like that? My name is Maria Stobbs, and you're listening to Burning Addiction. Last episode, we learned about John Orr, a respected fire investigator and a loving father. Today, we find out about his dark side, the side that compelled him to secretly set a string of fires that took the lives of four people. In January 1987, a convention for arson investigators from California was held in Fresno, and during and after the convention, Several suspicious fires were set in the area and south of Fresno in Bakersfield. Investigators also recovered a fingerprint left on a piece of notebook paper as part of a device used to start fires. This led Captain Marvin Casey of the Bakersfield Fire Department to suspect that an arson investigator from the Los Angeles area was responsible for the arson. They concluded that the arsonist may be someone attending these conferences. The investigation led to the arrest of John Orr, the trusted fire captain, and his daughter Lori Orr was shocked. So I immediately went and called my stepmom, Wanda, and asked her what was what was going on. And that conversation was that he, you know, was arrested for arson and that it was a big mistake. And he was investigating the arsonist. And there is a fireman starting these fires, but that it's not him. And that all of this was going to get worked out everything would be fine. It was hard to believe. For one thing, I can't stand a dirty cop. That's Dennis Wilson. He was John's partner in the arson unit for six years. I had given six years of my life trying to be the best arson investigator that I could be. And that included working with John. It was just hard for me to believe that when they finally arrested him, that my six years went kind of to waste. But the task force began questioning Dennis's own involvement in the fires. I'm not a dirty cop. Never would, would be, and I hate those that are. So, you know, I, it was hard to believe after all of those years, and, and even Doug's years and the years after that, that he was that way. Doug Stobbs is my dad. He was John Orr's partner next. I got a call from somebody telling me that John was being arrested at his house. And I watched it on TV. I watched him, you know, take John Orr out of his house and put him in the police car and uh, drive him out of there. He got arrested for arson. Everybody, including myself, was totally shocked. But as the shock subsided, things started to make sense to my dad. He said he started to think about how John was a different kind of guy, and he always knew there was something going on with him, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it. He thought maybe John was a sexual deviant, but never an arsonist. He started to feel like a fool. He became angry at himself for not thinking outside the box and for putting so much trust in John. All of the strange interactions he brushed off before because he trusted his partner became clear. He started to remember several different incidents. He told me about the time he came across John's signature incendiary time delay device. It's basically a device designed to set fires, 
but the slow burn gives an opportunity for the fire setter to leave the scene before the fire ignites. I was helping him carry some things to the trunk of his car after a training session, and I saw a pack of Marlboro Reds in his trunk in a little box, and I knew John didn't smoke. I said, John, why do you have the cigarettes back there? And he says, well, I keep them for training. Apparently, he would use the cigarettes to, you know, as a demonstration for some fires. My dad looked further in the box in John's trunk, and he noticed a device containing a lit cigarette with matches, yellow lined paper, all wrapped with a rubber band. That's the device John would set in stores while they were open and populated to cause a fire. And he says, oh, that's a time delay device that I found at an arson scene. And I recreated that. And I used that for training also. And he said that by the time that cigarette burns down and ignites that match, the arsonist miles away. He gives him several minutes to get out of the building, get out of wherever he's going, and go. And he said the pennies were used in case he wanted to throw the device or the suspect wanted to throw the device over a fence or chuck it a ways into a grassy area or wherever he wanted to catch fire also. I took his word for it. I figure, you know, that makes total sense. I thought the guy's very thorough. I had no reason to doubt that. He also told me that by the time he had started going on his own to investigate arson, there was a rash of carport fires occurring once or twice a week. These fires would occur at apartment buildings normally, in carports where cars were. Normally gas was used. They had uh, either poured on a car or inside an unlocked vehicle, start the fire, and it would burn a car or two and burn some of the structure. Luckily, nobody was ever injured or killed during these things. At the time, the arson unit had two cars, which belonged to the fire department. One was a gray four-door sedan, and the other was a dark blue van with no windows on the sides. The investigator on call would drive the gray sedan, and if two investigators were needed at a scene, the other investigator would drive the blue van. I'm at this fire, and I, I find a witness. And this guy got out of the car. He said it was about two in the morning and he said, I saw a guy running from the carport and he said he was a male, white or Mexican. I want to say 30 to 40 dark blue windbreaker, which is what we wore. And uh, he says he ran down the street about a half a block and jumped into a dark blue van and he drove off. My dad told John about the witness the next morning. And he says, well, what did the guy see? And I said, well, he saw, I described the suspect, male, white, Hispanic, 30s to 40s, wearing a dark windbreaker. He ran and got into a blue van. He says it was a dark blue van. I said, not a lot of those around. My dad put out a broadcast to alert patrol units to keep an eye out for a dark blue van in the night. He asked John if he wanted to go with him to talk to the witness again. He said, oh, no, no, that's okay. I, uh, I have some interviews to do on my own. I said, oh, okay. I thought, all right. I mean, he didn't tell me what the interviews were, but... He had never up to that point denied going with me anywhere, you know. A few days later, John asked my dad if he wanted to have permanent vehicles assigned to them instead of switching out every week for whoever's on call. John said, Why don't you drive the dark blue van and I can drive the uh, car? And he says, I know you like to drive the van, which I did. So we just do that all the time instead of switching off. And I said, sure, we'll do that. So I kind of looked back now at the timing of that. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird also. After that, there were no more carport fires. They just stopped. Aside from being a police officer, my dad owned a security company. He hired off-duty cops as security, 
and his company worked security for a development firm building a bunch of homes in Oakmont View. During their building up there, they began experiencing thefts. People would go into the area at night and steal things. So they hired us, and I had a police officer that stayed at the only entrance into the development. They were sitting there from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so we did that for a couple months. And John asked me if he could work some of the hours over there because he needed the extra money. And I said, sure. Well, there were some budget concerns from Oakmont View, so they asked my dad to shorten security hours. So I go into the office next morning. I told John, I said, yeah, I said, they're cutting our hours back at Oakmont View. And we're going to be there from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. So it's a six-hour stint instead of a 12-hour stint. And they paid pretty good money. So a lot of the cops, you know, they loved working those off-duty jobs. John was like, well, that sucks. And I was just getting used to the extra money there. He says, but it is what it is. John was scheduled to work there a few days later. He worked from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. At 4 a.m. that same night, there was a fire at Oakmont View, the home development John was just working security at. So he goes out there, and the largest structure in the entire development, it was a huge home that was under the framing stages, had burnt to the ground. Somebody had doused gas all over the place, and they lit it up, and it caught fire. I go into work the next morning, and John tells me about it. He says, can you believe that? He says, I was there till 3. At 4 o'clock, somebody went up there, and they burnt the place down. And I'm like, wow. Needless to say, Oakmont View called us back, and they said, hey, we need to put the hours back from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And he was like, yeah, well, hey, we got our hours back anyway. A complex that didn't see much crime experienced arson. And just as John wanted, the company got its hours back. My dad also remembered the times he drove to his parents' house after work. He'd get off work at 5, drive the van to Glen Oaks, and have a cup of coffee. I'm getting in my van, and their house is about two or three blocks from the entrance to Chevy Chase Canyon. So about 5.30, I get in the van, I look over, and I see a very small amount of smoke coming up from the canyon entrance. I don't hear anything from the police radio or the fire radio, so... I figure well, I'll drive up there and see what it is, you know, see if it's, uh, you know, some kind of a fire. And as I entered, I saw John's car, his arson car, parked at the curb facing out of the canyon. I saw him run from the grassy area over where the grass was burning over to the driver's door, and he quickly opened it. Before he could get into the vehicle, he saw me driving toward him in the van. I stopped the van in front of his car. So he closed the door, and he comes walking over to the van. And I said, what are you doing here? I said, I was on Glen Oaks. And I said, uh, I saw the smoke coming from here. So I figured I'd roll up here to see if there was a fire. And it had burnt about an acre at that point, going up the canyon. So I asked John, I said, well, what are you doing? And uh, he said, I was up in the canyon. I was visiting my girlfriend and coming down, and I saw the fire here. And he says, so I pulled over and I said, well, you must have missed the suspect by second. He says, yeah. He says, I, I guess I did. And, you know, thinking back on it, he was a little nervous, I guess, but you know, I think I startled him. But what really got me was he walked right over to the burnt area and he picks up that same signature device that I saw in the trunk of his car and says, well, here's what started the fire. And I thought, damn, this guy's good. I thought he is good. You know, walk right over to that area, and he says, this is the point of origin. This is where it started. Later on, another rash of fires occurred. 
this time along railroad tracks between Glendale and the Los Angeles area. They occurred between midnight and 3 in the morning, about four or five times a month. John was convinced a fireman was starting these fires. He would say that he was looking at the cycle of when the fires were occurring and the firefighters' work cycle, because they would work 24-hour shifts. They were off for a couple of days, work 24-hour shifts off a couple of days. And he said he was even trying to figure out which firefighters were off during these fires because he was convinced it was a firefighter that started. Well, my dad disagreed and they discussed their investigations. And one night, after my dad had finished bowling in his police department league, it had gotten late and he began thinking. It's been a few days since we'd had a fire along the tracks and figured, you know, this guy's due to come back and start a fire. We haven't had one in a few days. And I thought, I may just drive down there on my own and set up and watch to see if he shows up. You know, just a kind of a gut feeling, figuring it, it, he's about due. So I drove up San Fernando Road and I got to Doran Street and I turned left and I went up under the freeway and to the end of the road by the tracks and I turned around facing San Fernando Road so I could watch the traffic, which at that time of night, there's very little traffic going up and down San Fernando Road. He blacked out the van, no lights, and he just watched. At about 12.30 in the morning, he saw a car come up San Fernando Road, slow down, and turn left onto Doran Street with its lights off. And it started driving real slow toward my direction. And I thought, oh shit, this is my guy. I pulled out my gun, I grabbed the police radio, and I figured, who else would this be? So I was gonna call for backup, and as the vehicle got closer, it was almost at my location, I recognized the vehicle, and it was John Orr. He stopped on the other side of the column, and he got out, and slowly started walking toward the van. And I got out of the van, and I approached him, and he was startled and uh, said, scared the fuck out of me. And I'm like, okay. And he says, what are you doing here? He says, I thought you were bowling on Wednesday nights and drank with the boys after. I said, I did. I said, I was bowling tonight. I said, but I figured this guy hadn't hit in three or four nights or whatever. And he was kind of due to hit. So I figured I'd come here in case he showed. And I asked John, I said, why are you here? And he says, well, I was leaving my girlfriend's house. And he said, and as I was coming up San Fernando Road, you know, I saw the van from San Fernando. I says, I didn't, I didn't know it was you, but I saw a van. And I thought, you know, wow, maybe that's, that's our suspect. So I believed him. I said, wow, okay. But, you know, in hindsight, thinking about it after he got arrested, looking back on some of these things, I thought, you know, there's no way he could have seen that van from San Fernando Road. It was dark blue. It's back in the dark. There's no lights over it. He could not have possibly seen that. But at the time, once again, I did not think outside the box. I figured, well, he told me a story. It makes sense to me. And, and who suspects her partner after all? And my dad never did suspect his partner could be the serial arsonist. Well, maybe he would have figured it out if his time in the arson unit wasn't cut short. He was supposed to work there three to six years, like Dennis did. But he later found out John was behind my dad's return back to patrol. I honestly think that uh, after the railroad track situation, he thought I was onto him and suspected him. 
and he wanted to get me out of the unit. John distanced himself from my dad. Every couple of weeks, they would meet with Chris Gray, the fire marshal, and all of a sudden, John started to meet with him on his own. I was like, wow, I didn't know about the meeting. He said, Chris feels that since I'm the senior investigator, there's no point in both of us meeting with him that, you know, it's good to have somebody in the office in case there's a call or something. So he recommended that I just show up at the meetings and I just relay to you what goes on in the meetings. A couple months after that, John was saying that the fire department began questioning how fair it was that they pay for the police officers training and arson when we're just being rotated out every three to six years. And then they have to pay thousands of dollars again to train a new police officer. When John's there trained and everything, they felt that it should be a more steady thing like John, where the officer be able to stay for a lot more years. They were entertaining the thought of uh, doing away with the police officer in that unit. Before he knew it, my dad was getting orders that he was returning to patrol and the arson unit was now going to consist of two firefighters. My dad met with Chris Gray a few years later. He asked him why he no longer wanted him to attend the meetings with him and John back when he worked arson. Chris was actually surprised and said uh, he never excluded me from these meetings. He said he would ask John why I didn't show up, and John would reply that I was probably working some late security gig and you know probably overslept. He suggested that he show up since he's the senior investigator to the meetings and he could relay whatever we talk about to me. The switch to only firefighters in the arson unit saved the department money, but it was John who pushed getting my dad out of there. This brings us back to Lori, John Orr's daughter, who even after his arrest, wasn't so convinced her dad was guilty. Not for a second did I think my dad was guilty of arson like that just didn't make sense in my brain at all that that could happen. So I kind of went along the lines that, you know, he's innocent, he's, you know, it'll get worked out and they'll get him out of jail. Next episode, we learn about what compelled John Orr to set these fires. I'm Maria Stobbs, and thank you for listening to the second episode of Burning Addiction. 